In this episode, we're joined by Martin Wilkes. Martin is a chartered counselling psychologist, associate fellow of the British Psychological Society, and is a registered applied psychology practice supervisor. Martin specialises as an acceptance and commitment therapy practitioner, and in this interview we discuss some of the core ideas of the approach, psychological flexibility, the benefits of living a values-based life, and the link between ACT and the ecological self. You can learn more about Martin's work on his website, www.martinwilkes.com. Enjoy the show. Okay, Martin, welcome to the show. Uh, for anybody that isn't aware of you and your work, could you just tell us a bit about your background and how you first discovered acceptance and commitment therapy? Yes, I think in, in short, I discovered it through a passionate interest in mindfulness and uh, that developed for me for in the early 80s, first through Tai Chi and then yoga, a period of quite intense self-exploration and uh, discovery and uh, I did a 10-day Vipassana retreat, which sort of set me off on, a, I suppose, something of a a Buddhist uh, practice path and I began to teach mindfulness in the late 80s on the festival scene and and so on and so forth. I had been an engineer in my original training <laughs> um, and uh, uh, but shifted over to psychology which uh, once I'd um, got a degree I just sort of put behind me and went off and had adventures for um, I suppose a decade or so. Um, but coming back, I'd also got quite interested in the, a person-centered approach to psychology, which was not my academic uh, experience of it at all. And through that uh, co-counseling, the method of a, a group of people, a community, a learning community, all learning the same approach to uh, facilitating each other in their own personal inquiry, uh, co-counseling. And I got fascinated about, uh, about sorry about that. Best late plans. <laughs> it's okay. I got fascinated about integrating the possibilities of integrating uh, the approach of, of mindfulness with the, the approaches of, of co-counseling. And I suppose to some extent anticipated uh, um, what, what uh, ACT was going to become much later. Um, and, and then towards the end of the 90s, as I was professionalizing myself more to, to become a kind of a recognized uh, therapist by doing a, a, a diploma in counseling psychology. I did some training with John Kabat-Zinn um, to, to further secularize, I suppose, my way of teaching uh, mindfulness and uh, did some presentations at the Bangor Institute of, uh, of Mindfulness uh, on my work in prisons. Uh, I've been managing a counselling service in Brixton Prison for many years, uh, using mindfulness with the counselling service. And um, it was there that I met uh, a group of people who all came from London. We, we got a little practice group together. And somebody who attended the, the group mentioned to me this new approach called ACT that I might like. And I can't remember his name, but I'm grateful to him because I, I found that I did like it a lot. And uh, it, it had a lot of flexibility and it, it, it did a lot of the kind of integration that I was finding fascinating. And it had all been done with such thoroughness. 
that I shifted over from, uh, I suppose, a, a humanistic a approach, amazingly to me, uh, over the bridge to something which is, is really in the world of behavior change uh, psychotherapy, but is so very, uh, I suppose, welcoming of, of different models of, of therapy, really, that, uh, that I, I found a comfortable home in that learning community. That's a, that's a fascinating career path you've been on, Martin, so far. Um, I'm curious to ask, you know, uh, what would you say the main benefits are between ACT and other forms of psychotherapy, like some of the humanistic therapies and like things like cognitive behavioral therapy? Like, what would you say are the main differentiating points of ACT and why, it, why it's so powerful? Mm. Mm. Well, first of all, it's, it, it is a very integrating model. Uh, as in a person, somebody trained in the person-centered approach such as myself can feel as at home in practicing ACT as can the many as uh, CBT therapists who've uh, transformed their practice in the direction of, um, of, of ACT. Um, so it's, it's, it's integrative. So, so perhaps that's one of the advantages is that we can be both focused upon behavior change uh, client behavior change and focused uh, upon uh, as we would do in the person-centered approach very much focused upon the depth of working relationship as well being two human beings in a room together respecting each other's humanity respecting each other's uh, suffering and uh, each other's best efforts um, and uh, so that uh, is certainly an advantage. Apologies for that second little interruption. I've got some coffee to sustain me now on, on, on the interview. <laughs> it's all good. Don't worry about it. Um, yeah. So with ACT, what would you say are the core ideas that the approach is built upon? Hmm. Well, I suppose philosophically speaking, um, there's a, a, a core difference between a, a, a kind of a, a mechanistic approach to the philosophy of change of of of, of cause and effect um uh, to towards uh, something that we call uh, functional uh, contextualism um which uh, has quite a different feel to it uh, the the truth criteria of functional contextualism is what is true is that which works uh, and when you apply that to uh, the work with, with uh, one's clients, what works, what is workability, um, to coin a, a phrase, um, is that which helps a client move towards what truly matters to them in life. And, and this, in a way, this is where the values are integrated into the ACT model. So the, the truth of what we're doing as therapists is a way, according to functional contextualism um, is did the intervention work the proposed intervention in this moment that I as a therapist are thinking about does it work or contribute towards helping the client move towards what's most important to them in their lives that's really interesting I've never heard of that before so function am I getting this right functional functional contextualism is, is basically the idea that the truth is what works, what actually works. In yes, it's a pra it, is, it is profoundly pragmatic uh, um, in that. Uh, uh, and um, that means 
a, a great deal of flexibility. And of course, um, you know, I think we'll be exploring that later. But uh, it, when we're not bound to rules uh, in in the the ACT model, um, we, we move around. We move move around the model according to what's what's going to work in the moment. Um, and it, it's all in the service, if you like, of what we know of the client's values. And that helped me coming to this model from a person-centered uh, place where I deeply respected the, uh, if you like, the, the, the rules of, of, of Carl, Carl Rogers, who um, in a way, in developing the model was um, back in the 50s and 60s, was uh, pushing back against perhaps the excesses of a, a very mechanistic, um, uh, developing uh, behavioral psychology develop, uh, you know, the, delivered by somewhat inhumane scientists <laughs> and that's obviously a little uh, stereotyping and unkind but I'm, I'm just trying to make the point so his was a very heartful approach which believed in the client's self-actualizing potential and uh, advised strongly against the therapist directing the client in any way so it was non-directive therapy um, with act by uh, recognizing and, and, and understanding and working with the client on their values once i as a therapist know what a client values then i can give myself permission without in a way uh, um, compromising those earlier principles to help direct because i know it is what the client wants it is it is if you like their self-actualizing uh, potential is the, the the knowing of their values and if i can then pragmatically work with the act model to help direct them in the direction that they've said they want to go then i'm both being a behavior change scientist if you like and i'm also being a person-centered therapist Practically speaking, how would how does ACT actually work? You know, how are how are the sessions structured? What are the key things that a, an ACT practitioner would focus on at the start of a session with with their client? And how long would it usually last? Like, how long is is it a long form of therapy? Is it quite short term? Could you tell us about a bit of the practicalities of, of this model of working with people? Yeah, yeah. Uh, with regard to long or or short term. Um, I suppose typically people would, uh, practitioners may, may start with uh, uh, an idea of six to eight meetings, um, uh, giving the model uh, and the engagement with the client a good shot. Um, having said that, there, there are uh, active developments in, in creating single session act and uh, useful outcome evidence to show its effectiveness. And again, um, I, I I can work with with people over you know a period of years, uh, usually uh, focused upon the you know continually focused upon the ACT model, um, and at the same time working with deeply entrenched, reoccurring, regressive patterns of of behaviour that need us both to go back to the basic principles, work again, and. Uh, um, come back round to the hexaflex which we haven't spoken about yet but the way the model is is visually uh, presented to, as a reminder to to people 
uh, swings from the acceptance side of, uh, of, of the model uh, to the commitment side of the model and uh, often the commitments are, are hard to keep or hard to, to move towards and there's a swinging back to the acceptance side and to and fro. So I suppose it depends how, uh, how psychologically rigid um, the people we're working with uh, have become, how deeply entrenched in, in their, their patterns which sadly are somewhat self-defeating. Uh, so, okay, okay, so that's the, the length of time. How do we work? To begin with, we'd work towards something that we call, uh, we, we call um, creative hopelessness. Uh, it, it's an interesting phrase. Um, you know, it sounds a bit of a paradox in itself, which draws attention to it, which I think is helpful. But by creative hopelessness, we mean the creativity that is liberated by recognizing the hopelessness of doing the same thing over and over again when it's clear that it doesn't work. And that takes, that takes some careful debriefing because it's no good me just saying that as I've said it in a way. Uh, we, we need it to come not from the authority of a, a, a person you've, you know, you've only just kind of met um, uh, we need it to come from the client's own personal authority through a series of, of questioning about the things that they've tried and the experiences they've had of the efforts they've tried to overcome the issue that they've brought, to, to struggle with and overcome the issue that they've brought. And uh, patiently um, together we work to a, a penny dropping moment um, uh, when the, the, the penny drops which is well given all that you've told me um uh, uh, what uh, uh, what what does it what does it tell you about uh, uh, trying that approach again and and there is that oh, hopelessness feeling and the creativity at that point would you be willing to try a different approach and that is the approach of really dismantling what we could call the control agenda and as an alternative, offering the acceptance agenda. Very interesting. So rather than control unwanted inner experiences, we invite clients to accept unwanted inner experiences when and if that helps them move in the direction that truly matters to them. Makes a lot of sense. Um, so are there any situations where ACT is particularly effective, like any particular cases where it's been proven that it's a really effective treatment? Anxiety is certainly, and, and generalized anxiety, is certainly one of the most um, illustrative of, of cases of, of how effective it is. And just to perhaps give quite an approachable example, uh, and, and a way I explain sometimes to clients who are struggling with that very unpleasant uh, condition uh, described as panic attack. Um, if we think about panic attack as anxiety about having anxiety, mm. we, can, we can see how we've got a, a sort of upward spiral there. Um, uh, it, it's a very, it's a, a simple construction. Uh, 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 panic attack is anxiety about having anxiety. Mm -hmm. And so if we can offer 
the acceptance agenda as a, an alternative to the control agenda, then instead of the, you know, the first flickers of, of, of butterflies in the stomach and the tightening of the chest, uh, and, <gasps> you know, the, 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 and, and then the gripping of the body as the control agendas uh, applied and, and then the, the mind getting full of, oh no, is this the beginning of a panic attack again? Uh, and, uh, you know, it's on that, hyper anxiety about those first flickers of anxiety if we can get in there as, as early as possible with techniques that allow us to accommodate those first flickers of anxiety and remove that second level of anxiety about anxiety then we're just with what it is we're with anxiety uncomfortable as anxiety is and, and how very human the experience of anxiety is too but that capacity to in a way drop the struggle with the anxiety allows it to be anxiety and the, the phenomenon of panic attack has no upward motor for, to, to wind us up so that's a, perhaps a good a good illustration of uh, of its effectiveness and uh, and certainly uh, there's, there's reams of uh, of outcome evidence plus uh, plenty of evidence uh, of, of how each of the the different core processes contribute to to work with helping with anxiety and um something that's just been published um a few days ago uh, by yale uh, university um is uh, is a handbook a little manual a recommended manual of of using acceptance and commitment therapy with psychedelic assisted uh, therapy uh, it's it's been uh, discovered by yale anyway and uh, its research teams that act is the approach that lends itself best to uh, helping with both preparation and reintegration sessions uh, therapy sessions in the before and after of using psychedelics to assist with um, uh, long-term depression. That's, that's super interesting. Um, just going back to the anxi anxiety thing. Um, yeah. In his book, in his book, A Liberty of Mind, Stephen Hayes, um, he says um, the important thing, the important thing is that it's not really important um, what we think that that's not the important thing. It's how we, it's not, it's, what we think and feel isn't important. It's how we relate to what we think and feel that's important. So whenever we have an anxious thought and then we try and solve that with another, another thought, like that's the source of the problem. So it's, it's changing our relationship to our thoughts. So it's, is it, is it in a way that we allow these thoughts to be without trying to change them? And then they're more likely, it's more likely to pass quicker or is, is that the approach that's been recommended here? Or could you maybe expand upon that? Yeah. You're talking really there or referencing two of the core processes. Um, um, the, the, a core process that we call a cognitive defusion. Um, uh, just to demystify that because it's, uh, defusion isn't really a word as, as such, although diffusion is the way, the way a space is filled by, uh, by a, a gas, you know, and, and, uh, or, or the way it, it's a chemistry term, never mind about that. But defusion is, is, is to perhaps you know, take the fuse out of something, perhaps. 
but we're we're talking about a phenomenon uh, of mind and of human experience whereby we become identified with what we think so uh it, we we almost overlook if you like the uh the, that thinking is just another form of behavior it's cognitive behavior uh and um, like many uh, behaviors in in uh, in in the whole of the the sentient world i suppose um uh the behaviors become practiced and routinized and uh, habitual um and thinking uh to quote a, 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 a i can't remember who it was who said it but thinking is is a great servant and a lousy master because we can't actually kind of control what we think although we tend to uh, think we can uh, and and that's why the control agenda that we previously spoke about is 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 uh, is, is, is difficult it is seductive and very difficult so yes building a different relationship to our thinking whereby uh, we are in the perspective of being the noticer of thought as opposed to being subjected to what we think so as opposed to being in a way the, the subject of the thought we are the observer the witnessing of the behavior called thinking and uh, yeah that, that's the way of, of, of talking about it another way of talking about it is you know considering can we afford to buy into that particular thought so you know this this in a way is a, a what we might call a cognitive diffusion technique where there is a thought uh, i'm no good at job interviews there's no point in me applying for the job now you know can we afford to buy into that thought in what way will it serve us to invest in that thought and uh, you know if we buy in that thought it'll it'll perhaps service by uh, not having to worry about the anticipated rejection at an interview um, but it well, in the long term it certainly won't service in terms of getting a new job and you know if the value uh, the, the valued uh, direction is around uh, getting employment then it'll would do as well not to buy into that thought to simply observe the thought uh, and, and and recognize that we're having it but not letting the thought have us again just playing with the way we speak we can have a thought but make sure that we don't get had by it I, lo I love that i love that idea that whenever you have a thought that's not particularly helpful you can just ask what will it cost me to buy into this thought mm, yeah it's really powerful mm, it is isn't it yeah and and this is the pragmatism because you, you know we express our values in terms of thoughts as well and uh, but, but then of course you know identifying with the value i am a, a kind compassionate human being or, or, or something like that if that is then going to you know direct our behavior just in the way that identifying with the thought i'm no good at interviews is going to direct the behavior in the direction of not applying for the job but with the, with a, a valued thought like that we can buy into that because that's value all around isn't it you know it's value all around ourselves and everybody around us is going to find value in us believing in the thought i am a kind and compassionate human being 
Fantastic. So it seems to be that it seems that uh, psychological flexibility is a big part of the ACT model. So for anybody that hasn't heard of psychological flexibility before, could you just give us a brief kind of overview of, of what that means in, mm. in simple terms? Yeah, the whole model of, of ACT uh, is around psychological flexibility. And if we have any if you like, um, uh, um, uh, uh, definition of, of, of what is pathological, uh, it, it is, it, it's based around inflexibility. So w when ACT describes a pathology, we tend not to talk about it in terms of the DSM-5, wherever it's got, uh, you know, the, the, the way of, of labeling particular um, branches of human suffering. Um, we, we, we see it generally, and that's why ACT is a trans-diagnostic model. It works a, across a, a, a huge range of, 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 of diagnoses. Um, we, we tend to see it all in terms of psychological inflexibility, uh, which is uh, perhaps another way of describing the control agenda, you know, uh, uh, gripping on, on certain rules in life. You know, the rule like, I'm not that kind of person. Or, or you know, just as a, as a simple one. So a, a definition that I use in my my training of uh, psychological flexibility is here. It's, well, it's it's really describing psychological flexibility in as having two components: the ability to be psychologically present here and now in the moment, aware, attentive, open to, and engaged in your experience. And you know that, that doesn't sound like a big deal, but any, anybody who's actually sat down and practiced mindfulness meditation for, for only a few minutes will notice that you know hanging out there in this fascinating unfolding moment is challenging. You know, mind is off in the past, in the future, back we come again. And actually, if the present moment is is a challenging moment for whatever reason then uh, the, the, the challenge goes up in terms of staying with it. Uh, but the, the challenge of staying with a present moment in the moment of challenge is the possibility of, of being present and, and responding to that moment rather than the conditioned and habitual tendency to react to that moment in our various sort of escape strategies. So that's the first component, the ability to be psychologically present, aware, attentive, open to and engaged in our experience. And then secondly, the ability to direct our behavior, and that's in the external world, uh, to serve one's own valued ends. So in that moment of being open and aware to a situation, can I exert uh, my agency in the direction of what truly matters to me in that moment. Those two ideas, if you were just to internalize those two ideas and act them out in your life, like it would make such a difference. Just whenever something happens, whenever something perhaps difficult happens, um, mm -hmm. being able to stay with it, stay present, and then to choose your response based on your deeply held values and the kind of like long-term directions, as opposed to like an emotional reaction in the moment. Like if you could do that, like it would just have such an enormous benefit on, on your day-to-day -day experience of life. 
you know, it's such a powerful concept. And, and powerfully reflected back to me. I, I like the way you put that. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. And, you know, this isn't a, a destination. This is an ongoing process, just like mindfulness meditation is really, you know, it, it, it's a myth that we arrive somewhere, you know, some blissed out, uh, you know, permanent grip upon the present moment. Um, it, 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 it's, um, it, it, it's all in process, really. And, and working towards psychological flexibility is, is something that we, we are on at times and we're off at times. But, but with those stated values and a, a personal familiarity with what matters to us, we can be in the midst perhaps of a dispute with our loved, loved one. Uh, and, uh, and, and in that moment of confrontation uh, that, that we've so often ducked out of with a, a particular way of, of doing things, um, by being present and feeling all the experiences of that moment of growing uh, confrontation, there's a possibility to choose a, a way of, uh, of being assertive in the communication with in, instead of the usual sort of win-lose um, <clears throat> Uh, kind of, uh, you know, the method of communication that we've perhaps developed over years, we, we can go for a win-win um, solution that is also, which is clearly much more in line with our values. So that's, that's the advantage of psychological flexibility. That's really interesting. Now, maybe it'd be helpful to talk a little bit about psychological inflexibility and, and what that is and why I just noticed in myself, and I think it's a human tendency in general, we seem to have an obsession with, with rules. Like our minds can get very easily dominated by rules. And mm, you know, mm. why is this? And is there any way we can, useful ways we can overcome that? Huh. I, I, would, I would suggest that you know, those rules have proved helpful in the past sometime. Uh, you know, frequently, perhaps uh, in childhood, uh, and um, you know, at, at times when we weren't in full adult agency. Um, but rules that go: when this starts happening, what I do is this, <laughs> and uh, and and you know, particularly if you've been brought up in any with any sort of background uh, uh, trauma um, in in the family nexus, uh, we've all got some form of, 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 of trauma going on and transgenerationally, uh, you know, trauma gets passed down the, the family line generation by generation. Um, and so the, the, a, a young person, a young vulnerable person develops rules, you know, you don't, you don't express your emotions when mum's being emotional, it'll, you know, it'll only come back at you, you'll be punished. You'll be punished for it. Uh, it's an example. So that previous example, I, you know, uh, just uh, spontaneously came up with about being in an argument with your intimate other, perhaps. Maybe something there that uh, you know, the, there's a rule that that says even in that uh, moment of of confrontation, that what makes flexibility difficult there is that there is a rule running that that says. Don't share your emotion at this point. Your partner is becoming emotional. And, and so flexibility about rules, when, when we've become adult and in our agency and, and working towards uh, becoming 
more open uh, and more authentic as as uh, human beings is uh, is important i think your question was was why are they so around ubiquitous really and i think it's it's originally around self-protection but it was a, a much younger self and if we're looking in a way to expand our sense of self our, our self concept or, or even liberate ourselves from many of our self concepts um then dropping some of our rules is, is going to be a prerequisite 100 percent. that's really interesting um so now martin i'd like to start to cover just maybe an overview of the of the six core processes of act like yeah maybe if we could just briefly mention each one and then talk a little bit about um what each one is and if, maybe if you've got any examples of how someone might practice one of the processes that would be yeah. really helpful for listeners too yeah great yeah uh, very typically people will know of the act model being presented visually uh, around a, a hexagon uh, and uh, just as a sort of a playful uh, another playful invented word it's often called the hexaflex because uh, the, the six core processes are all around flexibility psychological flexibility um, and and so on on each of those surfaces of the hexaflex we, we, we write you know one of the one of the core processes. So I'll, I'll just go round um, typically in, in the order that we tend to see them visually. So at, at the top left of the hexaflex, we've got, we've got acceptance or willingness. And I tend to think of that more in, in terms of uh, our inner uh, embodied experiences. Although everything on the left side of the hexaflex is around acceptance really. Uh, but it, yeah, I find it best to think of it in terms of those butterflies in the stomach we spoke about earlier on. Um, the, the many embodied experiences uh, that, that, that all human beings have and are more or less in touch with. Um, where it is helpful to help us move in a valued direction, then the capacity to accommodate those experiences rather than flee what produces them or, or somehow develop a, a big internal battle to try and contain them and keep them in their place limit their frequency or their intensity where we can simply accommodate make room for then we are more flexible to meet the moment so that's the core process we call acceptance or willingness and sometimes it's useful to call it willingness rather than acceptance because people get a bit muddled with the idea of resignation. You mean I've just got to put up with my anxiety? Not at all. There's something much more active about acceptance. It isn't about resigning and putting up. It's, it's the opposite in a way. It's, I'll, I'll, I best leave it there, but, but it, 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 it's, it, it's, a, it's an active choice. It, it's not about being defeated. It, it's it's about moving forwards with courage so acceptance and willingness are the first core process and then as we come around the uh, hexaflex um it would be just thinking of the video i'm perhaps going around that way aren't i yeah. um we we're looking at cognitive diffusion we've spoken a little about that and you you wanted some examples of each 
um, incidentally the previous one acceptance breath work just doing some some breaths and using your breath to direct attention to the uncomfortable sensations and feeling your body expand as you breathe in and and literally uh, kind of as you expand feeling you i am making room for this sensation it, it, it's a powerful practice semi-meditative and uh, that is one great way of working with acceptance cognitive diffusion my favorite way is using my glasses because nowadays i just wear them all the time because the reading glasses they just disappear if i put them down but it seems they stay while they're on here um but i i like them as a cognitive diffusion device something about cognitive fusion is that distance setting up a distance between me and the thought that i'm having as opposed to i am anxious it is you know i i notice myself having the thought that what if the sky falls down on me whatever so there's a little bit of verbal distance there but this is a good metaphor it's it, you, actually using my glasses to represent a thought so i uh i notice the thought it's no good me applying for that job i i'm no good at interviews okay so i notice it and it's in a way one of my usual suspects it's it it, it it's been around every time i've thought of applying for a, for a job and there are another a set of other thoughts like that in fact come to think of it i haven't applied for a job for many years and and that thought is usually around I, I, I'm no good at interviews. Now, while I'm noticing that, I can also look at the advert in the paper and consider it. Uh, uh, but if I let this thought just kind of creep up on me unnoticed and end up on the end of my nose, when I look at the advert in the paper, <laughs> off I go. There's no point. There's no point. And I don't actually see that I'm seeing the advert through the thought I've been had by the thought so finding a way of noticing that i'm having the thought is is very helpful so i'm just sharing a a, a, fa a personal favorite of, of a, a kind of a visual metaphor of, uh, of how we make some distance between the thought that we notice and ourselves as the noticer of a thought that, that's such a great metaphor because it's sort of like the the thought becomes fused with your lens of the world and then whenever you take glasses off again beautifully you're... put beautifully put that's it and it is about fusion isn't it you know we become fused and and it is cognitive diffusion yeah mm. yeah, yeah. And the world the world is colored by by the thought and we we don't notice that the, the thought's done it in a way we believe it so heartily uh, uh that uh, you, you know it, it 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 the key thing about the act approach is we don't dispute the verbal content of the thought now other approaches uh, such as uh, traditional cbt will suggest you know well, what would be a more helpful way of thinking this or can you supply evidence for how true that is and so on and so forth a problem with that is that we end up with a mushroom cloud of thinking about it and it only takes the mind a moment to say ah yes but and we've got another you know if we come up with a sort of a, a, a perhaps a more functional way of thinking about it just the mind going yes but and then there'll be a, other things to do and we'll be locked in thought so we don't in, in act we don't even give the thought the credence 
to start disputing it. We just, oh, it's just thinking. Great, great. So yeah. what's, that's two. What's the that's third? That's two. One? I better get moving because there's another four to go. And there's, there's one or two slightly tricky ones to explain. Beautifully tricky ones to explain, actually, I should say. Um, but the next one in, in some sort of order, really, the two at the top and the bottom of the hexaflex uh, are present both in the acceptance side of the hexaflex and the commitment side of the hexaflex. Uh, and they're, they're, they're at the core. One of them is the capacity to be present in the moment. It's, it, it's, it's very similar in a way to mindfulness of the moment and in the moment, the ability to stay present and watch experiences come, last a while and cease to be and remain unmoved while you're practicing formal meditation and perhaps as a mindfulness in daily life, um, moving, but moving in valued directions. Um, and so I perhaps don't need to say much more about that, except that it's, uh, you know, well worth kind of cultivating as a, as a regular mindfulness practice. Um, and that's why I've given a lot of my life to teaching mindfulness practice. The one below at the bottom of the hexaflex is what we call self as context. And it is intriguing. It, it isn't easily captured in words. It, usually in the trainings that I do, the two-day in, introductory trainings, it's more about evoking an experience uh, for people. It, it, it's just a, a, a momentary experience of a shift of perspective, really. Because much of the time, we are uh, inevitably, almost, as, as, as human beings, uh, wedded or welded to our self-concepts, our, our sense of of who we are, are often, you know, as verbal descriptions, you know, I, I am a, um, I am a man, I am a, a, a white British male um, on, on the later end of middle age, <laughs> um, you know, whatever, you know, sort of like almost like noun ways of thinking of ourselves. Uh, in act we perhaps have three ways of thinking what is self. So there's, there's the many, 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 the inexhaustible numbers of verbal ways we could describe ourselves as nouns. When we're in meditation, we could describe ourselves in many ways as a process, as, as a selfing rather than some static noun self. It, I, I am breathing, I am listening, I am... Uh, uh, vibrating. Uh, the, uh, this is speaking about self as process, and, that, and that's, that has moved out of our verbal descriptions of ourselves. Self as context, if we carry on using a language metaphor, is not a part of speech at all. It is. It, it, it we could say perhaps it's the paper. The, sentences written on that wouldn't do either perhaps it's the person who writes the pe the, the thing but it, it, it you know it, it's a part it, 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 it's awareness itself it's not not even owned by me somehow although perhaps we don't go there that's moving almost into a, a, a non-dual uh, spiritual uh, component to, to act and and act does have spirit 
we can't go too far in language to 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 find that the the the, the great thing about having another place to go this this self as context this awareness perspective is it is it, it allows for uh, both acceptance and diffusion or almost kind of immediately uh, because we, it's a transcended place we, we transcend our experience in some respects we can it's contained and transcended at the same time in this this perspective self as context I, this um, this might be wrong. I'm not I'm not sure, but I remember re reading in that in that book from Stephen Hayes. He was saying that a good way to think about it is think of kind of like the witness, witnessing presence that was there when you were like four years old, was there when you were ten years old. That's there now. You know, it's there's something continuous about that. Yeah, that's kind of is that a helpful way to think about this? It stuff? is, and it, you know, by extension, there's a lovely Zen uh, uh, phrase. Uh, uh, what was your face before you were born um which, which is pointing you know pointing to the same you know the, the the same thing in a way um yeah yeah but it is helpful to to go back and just do some you know some, some reflective and uh uh you know almost meditative exercises you know perhaps simply with a group of people i might invite folks to uh, bring to mind a memory of their, their holiday last summer and, uh, and, and in doing that, notice yourself, notice yourself finding the memory and, and now inhabit the memory with as many sensory details as you can and remind yourself of who was there. And as you're doing it, notice yourself doing that. And, and now going back to that memory, notice that you were there, that noticer was there consolidating the memory in the first place that that aspect of you was there the knower of experiencing was there to notice consolidate and commit to memory and and then we can regress that we can keep going and i, I enjoy going back to next to um you know the last year at school perhaps in, in you know in, in uh, uh, higher education and then to the last year at uh, primary school and people tend to get that there is this kind of permanent perspective in a way and even though that every cell and every atom of our bodies is completely different from a material point of view um there there is a sameness a sense of self that was there to know this is happening 100 percent um, so that's, is that four we've done or five? Yeah, that's four. Yeah. And perhaps the, the other two are a little easier. Now we're moving over to the right hand side of the, the hexaflex and we're, uh, we'll go to the top, right? Values, uh, that which gives our life meaning, purpose, um, and, and yeah, value. Uh, working to help people identify that we're often out of touch with it. It's not really something that we were invited to do throughout. However high we've gone in our education, it, 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 we're not usually invited to consider what you know what it, what it is we truly value, <laughs> even whether we truly value the education we're getting for that matter. Um, you know, in in terms of you know our, our, our personal heartfelt desires. I think recently Steve Hayes has been calling them our yearnings. I, I, I like that. I, and I, I, like, I like the pulling power. 
that values have a, a sense of being pulled from the future so if we're considering or in, encouraging our clients in behavior change um, then rather than it being a, a therapist's push in terms of being a cheerleader and go on then go on it, it's more the client's own values acting as as, as beacons you know a, 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 a sort of come towards mm. this come come towards what you said truly matters to you um so that's the why this aspect is so important in the model we could we we almost need to preload the work with a, a little bit of stuff on on values and <clears throat> the order of things depends according to different clients and depends to some extent on how they engage in dialogue and this is where the art of of, of act comes not to be formulaic not to be too ordered to be able to move around the hexaflex according to the demands of the moment and demonstrate that capacity to be present and in the moment and respond to it as as a therapist as well so once we've established values then the last thing really is the commitment to to to, to act your committed action or goal setting um, which is very familiar to most behavior change therapies and the difference is here that we've got we're, we're making we're doing behavior change not for the sake of behavior change or not for the sake of perhaps you know conforming to societal expectations but we're doing our behavior change in order to help us move towards this heartfelt yearning that we've uh, worked to identify for ourselves yeah there's a lot of um, a lot of uh, finesse that we can uh, look at in terms of goal setting you know setting smart goals um, you know being uh, bringing accountability to that and uh, you know by such and such time i will have done this and so on and so forth and there's the usual problems uh, that, that will uh, meet the intentions you know in the homework perhaps between sessions a client may have committed to making a small but significant step in in the direction of something that really matters and it doesn't work out for a whole variety of reasons um, and so next week we go back and we'll perhaps refresh how important the value is and, and then we'll perhaps look at uh, the acceptance strategies that could be used to cope with that gutted feeling just before you decided not to make the telephone call to the estranged relative um and and then we can look at the you know the, the thoughts that, that were the usual suspects as i call them i think that's a nice little metaphor the usual suspects those those thoughts which take you hostage yeah you know, that's the crime <laughs> so for, for values um hmm. It took me a kind of a long time to kind of wrap my head around what values were and or what they actually are. And if, if something that I found really helpful when I was thinking about this was to contrast values with goals. And yeah. there's a there's a metaphor of um, two hikers about to hike up a mountain, and one takes a values based approach and one takes a goals based approach. Okay, so the val the values based hiker knows before they go up that. They really value curiosity and they value like deep conversations and exploration and presence and these things. So as they go up the mountain, they're kind of like embodying these values and they, mm. they enjoy the whole way up and they're 
they enjoy the process of doing it. Whereas mm. the goals-based hiker is like, all he can think about is getting to the top of the mountain. So mm. as a result, he misses all the beauty along the way and all these experiences. And it's kind of like, that's the kind of two approaches we can take to life, a values-based approach where we kind of work out what's important to us and how we can um, move in a way that we enjoy the process as opposed to um, just trying to get everything over and done with so we can get to the top of that mountain yeah. And, yeah. and move from there. You know, is that, is that a fair way to, to describe the, the values-based approach? Yeah, I think it's very illustrative, isn't it? And, and of course, the, um, <coughs> with that, uh, with that model, if you like, of those those two, if those two hikers become hapless hikers and the weather is so bad, and the peak is is not uh, reached, um, then our our values based uh, hiker um, has has still had a great adventure and ha had some wonderful conversations with if when he whenever he can get the attention of his fellow uh, hiker. Um, and, uh, and perhaps has really enjoyed how they made the decision to return and how they took some skillful decisions on the way down to return. Whereas all the way down, um, the, 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 obviously the, the committed action person, the, the goal-focused person, is just feeling disappointed and, and a failure. So that, that unpacks that a little further. So a really neat shorthand way of talking about values is qualities of being and doing qualities of being and doing and it's so important to, to have both aspects the doing and the being uh, in there that my qualities of being and doing quite a handy uh, way of, of, of just you know condensing it down really qualities of being and doing I like mm. that Mm, yeah like yeah i've heard i've heard it described that they're kind of like adverbs like you would say like uh teaching clearly or mm, giving mm. gratefully or it's always an adverb after something is that yeah well that's definitely a qualifier isn't it a you know a, a qualify a qualifying word yeah. um yeah in fact, you know, sometimes helping people identify values, I'll use a, a, a so-called values card sort, 70 or 80 uh, different small cards with, with values, words written on them. Now, there's a few little problems here, as in our values need to be our values. So even presenting people with a, a list of, of, of values, words, you know, is, is a touch presumptuous. <laughs> but... Nonetheless, it, 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 it perhaps tunes the mind to just be thinking about what are values just by looking at the words we have in the language for them. But sometimes, um, uh, you know, people will mistake the, uh, the exercise for these are the values then. These, I must choose my value from the 70 or 80 cards. But I think of them more as vocabulary uh, and, yeah, adverb vocabulary, you know, li you know, I may want to be looking at what values do I bring uh, in the world or the realm of my intimate relationships. And um, so then authenticity may be, may be an important word that would describe uh, my value in, in, um, in relationships. It, it wouldn't be the value, but it would be perhaps with authenticity, I communicate wherever possible with authenticity and, and uh, patience and authenticity or something 
you know, something along those lines, um, you know, build up with, with value words. To create a mission statement, I find that that is that's an ideal it is 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 to um, be able to speak um, in in that manner. Very interesting. Now, um, I'm not sure if I'm getting the term right, so you can correct me if I'm wrong. But um, you've done some work on the ecological self. Mm, yeah. Can you tell us a bit more about what what that is and how that relates? Yeah, I appreciate to you asking asking me that question. Um, yeah, uh, and I've unpacked it a little further, that, uh, which I'll, I'll I'll talk briefly about then. So uh, I've been very uh, committed. <laughs> One of my committed actions in the service of uh, the value I place upon um social and cultural change uh, and 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 playing a part in it and indeed i like to bring that to my my work with my clients as well in whatever way i can and wherever i get a chance i i i, I will um introduce the possibility of uh, not only change uh, personal change but also one's own contribution to the um, what I see is the absolute vital necessity for uh, the cultural, human cultural change, and literally vital, and, and really feeling on the, the cusp of that, um, and wanting to play a part, really. Um, so the ecological self has been around as a concept since uh, developed by a, a, a deep philosopher called Arne Ness. I think he was a, a Danish uh, philosopher. Um, and, and then again, taken forwards by people uh, like Joanna Macy, uh, who's been around, uh, an inspirational woman in her 90s now, been around and, and, and teaching ever since I began social activism and before, um, uh, you know, I, I began in the 80s or, or so. And at that time, she was running things called the um, despair and empowerment workshops to support people in the, um, in the, the, the struggles during the Cold War, the, the peace movement, people who were burning out with their despair. And uh, her beautiful insight was that if we can open up and accommodate our despair, and you can hear the, the echoes in, in act of that, um, then we can find you know, resilience and, and, and stay committed to uh, our values of peace, you know, peace as, as peace protesters, uh, stay committed to that. Um, but the ecological self to me seems utterly uh, vital for us as individual human beings to truly understand ecological valuing. Uh, I've worked hard within the uh, ACT community to, to, to um, in, introduce um, ecological valuing uh, as, uh, um, if you like, an extra realm of values that isn't in the traditional um, uh, values sheet where we help people uh, you know, uh, go through different areas of their life to say what they truly value. Um, and there's the very noticeable gap I felt in terms of ecological valuing. And that's because of something, you know, a, a pro 
the proximity we, we can talk about what we value in terms of intimate relationships because you know this is the per person we live with in our house or we can talk about uh, what we value in terms of our family because that's traditional values that have been around since biblical times many of our values are you know rooted in uh, stuff that comes from the, the religions that were developed at that time that, that knew nothing about what science is telling us now in, in terms of the eco, ecological uh, niche that uh, human life and indeed uh, all sentient beings occupy that, that is very, very rapidly degrading on account of, of human behavior. And as we are working with human behavior change here, the science of human behavior change, it seems very, very important that we extend beyond the individual and to the collective and and so that's always there for me uh, for me in my own life and all the various things that I do apart from being a therapist of individual people but also to help fire people up individuals to fire people up uh, in terms of when you you know in a way when you've loosened this psychological inflexibility in in terms of what you brought to struggle with will you take your flexibility uh, into the world and, and, and be a contributor to how uh, human culture will evolve and, and can change. Mm. So it's, it feels political, you know, it feels both personal and political. Uh, and I, I mean, political, I don't know, in a small p or whatever, but you know, the, you know, the, the politics of human survival here, you know, are, beyond the personal preoccupations of, 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 of each of us as individuals struggling with our rigid psychology. Um, and, uh, you know, whatever, to the extent to which we can become liberated from that, can, can we uh, contribute uh, our insights into evolution, cultural evolution? Can we become evolutionaries? So, in some way, does this require shifting our perspective to almost identify with uh, the planet or a larger, as you call it, ecological self? And that seems to be important because if we're gonna if we're gonna value something, we might have to identify with it in some level as well. Beautifully put, Niall. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's it. You know, we can have values like you know, uh, you know, from a human point of view, we can perhaps say that we, we you know, we like to see nature and um, uh, you know, sense of using nature in a way. And the the uh, the the long the lifelong activist John Seed from Australia. Um, when asked where does he get the uh, if you like the commitment to be still defending the rainforests you know three four decades later you know when he first came to prominence in Australia doing that uh, and uh, in a penny dropping moment he said uh, I, I came to realize that it, it wasn't me doing the right thing anymore it wasn't that I was just that part of the rainforest that had woken up to its own destruction and wanted to take the right actions. Uh, and, and, and that was, you know, that's beautiful. And, and there, there, there are quotes around like that, that, that you, get, you, you just get it for a moment where other people have got it and, and just felt into that. Um, uh, and, you know, it, it really does take some, some cultivation 
to know that this is it's the quality of interdependency and interbeing as the uh, the vietnamese uh, monk Thich Nhat Hanh uh, coined the term interbeing uh, so rather than individual human being uh, and this the story of separation which in a way our whole kind of uh, cultural model runs on uh, you know dog eat dog sad, sadly still to some extent uh, competition and, and and so on and so forth it, it's it's a it's a story a new almost like we need a new narrative uh, we, we're, and we're we're reaching towards it and i think some of that will will be actually having experiences perhaps deep in nature where we can feel our at oneness and indeed you know i've 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 had that, that privilege at times, you know, spending long times meditating in in woodland and wilderness and 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 just being, and 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 feeling that in moments of that interbeing that that, that that give us the energy for working beyond our own personal needs and desires. It, it's ecological valuing rather than my valuing. That's that's what excites me, and it, and it isn't only around you know kind of global warming and climate change. It it, it, it encompasses uh, diversity, all sorts of the inequities uh, of, of the current system, and I feel we all have a part to play in that. And it's not just about winning the game; it's about changing the game. Um, in terms of actually developing this perspective and this. Mm cultivating it um aside from spending time in nature and maybe meditation mm. is there any other things that people can do to to cultivate this like are there any books you would recommend um or any resources mm. uh, active hope by joanna macy is is a is a great book um, and, and it, you know, is a condensation of her work over decades, really, uh, full of uh, useful practices, um, and um, uh, a great emphasis on working in group. Because I think one of the one of the ways we we can get a sense of this is through group work. Um, you know, group work with a facilitator that is keen to facilitate usness, a sense of usness, and uh, you. It's working in the we space, if you like. You know what we, how we can be, what we can do, and many many small nodes of this, uh, getting in touch with each other in in some respects, um, networking small uh, units of of. Uh, it, we talk about it in in the wonderful uh, coming together of evolution science biological science, social science, and uh, the science of uh, behavior change, which is known as the pro-social model. Um, we talk about this as polycentric governance, small groups of people managing the commons uh, and, and uh, coming together almost, almost like a beehive of, uh, of, uh, of, of small groups working um, to, 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 to group uh, values rather than individual values and and then finding their way to you know to to take it upwards in, in polycentric governance 
it's, it's an inspirational model um, and uh, you know it's exciting to be part of that kind of work brilliant well martin i think that's a great place to end um yeah. thank you thank you very much for your for your time today i really appreciate it um is there where can people find you online or are there any resource you'd recommend people to, to go check out yeah um myself is it's an easy one it's the three w's uh, dot martin wilkes with no e in the surname dot uh, com so www.martinwilkes.com uh, and i've also got a uh, got a, a community interest uh, company that i work with uh, on in the pro-social model with uh, the five colleagues and and, and that's um, the three dots be with that's b-w-i-s it stands for being well in suffolk i live in suffolk in in the uk uh, dot online that's b-w-i-s dot online yeah mm. Cool. We'll link to these in the show notes for the interview. That's great. Thanks. And, and then uh, generally for the Association of Contextual and Behavioral Science, which is a, the kind of mothership of, of these, uh, uh, this particular therapeutic approach, functional contextualism and a variety of, of, of other therapy approaches that are fellow travelers that live within it. Um, that, that's just go looking for um, ACBS, um, I'll just get the link for you. That won't be a second. We can send. We can start. You can. can You can get that together yourself. Yes. Okay. Don't worry about it. That is a a huge resource where many, many teachers share their particular ways of teaching. There's a whole journal. Uh, It's a values-based membership site, so that you can get much of the stuff there for free. And some stuff you may have to join, but you can decide what it's worth to you, um, which is is a good principle, really, to demonstrate. Great. Great. Mm. Well, Martin, thanks again. I really appreciate it. And best of luck to you going forward. Thank you, Niall. Yeah, I appreciated you giving me the, the chance, particularly to share my enthusiasm for the latter part of, of the session.